Well, if, uh, <clears throat> if you are old enough to have predated the iPhone, you may know what this is. This is, this is what kids used to play with before they had iPhones. You guys remember this? Remember these? A marble maze, right? And you had knobs and you could kind of tip it. And the objective, well, of course, was to move it uh, along the path without uh, falling in one of the myriad of holes that were along the way. And if you got really, really good at it, you could do it frontwards and then you could do it backwards. Um, it's amazing the skills that you master when you don't have an iPhone. But, um, you know, <clears throat> if you were to look at this board, not from the top down, but from the perspective of the marble, um, I think what is happening to you would make absolutely no sense. You're jerked one way to the other. You're slammed into a stop. You just get rolling good and someone stops you and you're back and forth and round and up and down. And um, it would make almost no sense. I think it would feel pretty random to you maybe pretty hopeless to you, but from the perspective of the operator, the game player, um, every bump, every tilt, every stop, every don't go there is purposeful, right? Now, I want you to look at that maze good, and then look at what I'm going to show you next and see if you see anything in common, okay? That's the map of Paul's second missionary journey. And I can't help but imagine that at points, Paul felt like, what is going on here? We got this twist, this turn, this bump, this stop. Uh, it makes no sense to me. Especially, I imagine that in Acts 16, where we were last week, right? Paul has this good and noble desire. It says, um, to go to, to share the gospel in certain places. As they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Um, you know, I think these twists and turns and redirects um, and all the sorrow and suffering that Paul encountered along the way at points could have seemed pretty random. But then there are those moments, for instance, here after these two closed doors... Um, it's like all of a sudden the board tilts one way and a door opens up wide for Paul in, in verses 9 and 10 of our passage from last week. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. See, and that's, that's where we're going to pick up today in Acts chapter 16, right where God swings open wide a door. After he's closed two, he swings open wide the door to Macedonia. And today we'll look on at least two, maybe three stories, um, as to why God directed Paul there. So if you open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 16, we'll start in verse 11 where we left off last week where it says, so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and a following day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony, we remained in this city some days. Now you notice Luke is writing uh, first person here. He's, he's using we 
So now Luke evidently has joined Paul's band of missionaries traveling with him. So we have first-person testimony at, at this point in time of what's going on. On the Sabbath day, Luke writes, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. Now, if you remember on, on his journeys, it was often Paul's pattern first to look for a synagogue and go and speak to the Jewish people there. Well, in this case, there doesn't appear to be a synagogue. It took 10 men in a city to form a synagogue. Um, that was their guiding rule. And uh, he's getting farther and farther away from Jerusalem. So here he doesn't find a synagogue. Instead, he finds something called a place of prayer. And there are no men involved. Here it seems only women. So Paul, the Apostle Paul whom George Bernard Shaw once called the eternal enemy of women, often accused of being the great chauvinist of the New Testament, here comes upon some women. So what does Paul do? He gladly teaches them the Word. Okay. I, I doubt seriously that these women would share George Bernard Shaw's appraisal of Paul. Paul's glad to teach them. Now, only one of these women is identified by name. Her name is Lydia. And if you put the pieces all together, it, likely she was a Gentile businesswoman. It says she was a seller of purple cloth or purple goods from a city across the Aegean Sea called Thyatira. Very likely that she was either widowed or possibly divorced and that, that explains why there's no husband that shows up at all in her story. Um, Luke says something interesting about her. He says she was a worshiper of God. The language suggests that she may have been from a pagan background, one who had once worshipped many gods, but now she had come to worship the one true God of Israel at this Jewish place of prayer outside the city of Philippi. It says then that the Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after that, and, and brother, and after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So you have some, some serious hospitality going on here by Lydia as she invites this team of uh, believers into her home. Um, but notice that God opens her heart. This is God's work. See, this is one of the stories, I think, that explains why Paul was not allowed to go to Asia or Bithynia, but rather was directed, redirected to Macedonia. He came for Lydia. Okay? God brought Paul to Macedonia for Lydia and her family. And it's interesting how she's described Luke says she's a worshiper of God, but evidently she was a worshiper of God who did not know God. It's a curious description, but you know, I, th I think there are people like Lydia today. There are people who believe in God, who may even attend a worship service like this one in the name of God. 
but don't know God as Father through the work of His Son, Jesus, on their behalf. Okay? I think there are people like Lydia today. I think there are a lot of them. I think you probably know them, and I bet that sooner or later you're going to meet someone who's like Lydia. And if you do, could you explain to Lydia when you meet her the difference between being a church attender who believes in God and someone who knows God as Father by faith in what Jesus has done? Could you explain that to her clearly? Um, I remember hearing a story years ago uh, by Chicago area pastor Bill Hybels, and uh, he says that his wife Lynn and he were on a sailing trip, and uh, after anchoring in a harbor for the night, he says, we met some people who invited us to come to their boat later to spend some time socializing with them, a few of their friends. He says, it's when, when we're in the process of leaving after the party that the moment came, he says. Lynn had already climbed down the ladder into the dinghy, and I was halfway down myself when one of the people who had invited us aboard said, Say, Bill, before you leave, can you answer a question? I've always wanted to ask a Christian what it means to become one. Can you tell all of us? <laughs> all right? So this whole array of party people are standing on the edge of the boat, evidently, as Bill's climbing down the ladder to, to get into the little dinghy to go back to his sailboat, and they ask him this question. This is what he says. He says, let's do a freeze frame. Okay? If you had been in my place, how would you have responded? Would you have been ready to give a succinct response to such an important question? Okay. This is what he said. He said to the, to the people all along the railing of the boat, he said, first, you've got to realize the difference between religion and Christianity. He says, religion is spelled D-O, do. Because it consists of the things people do to try to somehow gain God's forgiveness and favor. He says, the problem is, you never know when you've done enough. It's like being a salesman who knows he must meet a quota, but's never told what it is. You can't be sure you've done enough. Worse yet, the Bible tells us in Romans 3.23 that we never can do enough. We always fall short of God's perfect standard. He said, but thankfully, Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E, done which means that what we could never do for ourselves, Christ has already done for us. He lived the perfect life we could never live, and He willingly died on the cross to pay the penalty we owed for our wrongs. That's a pretty good answer. Okay. If you meet Lydia, when you meet Lydia, can you explain how she can know God? You know, if, um, if I don't have a fancy little booklet... There's lots of really neat, fancy little booklets that help you with this that you can just give to people and say, here, read this. Um, but if I don't have a fancy booklet, if I just got a napkin and a piece of paper, what I like to, the way I like to answer this question for people about how they can know God is to tell them three things about God and three things about us. And I just say the first thing the Bible says about God is that He's holy. And it also says that we are not. Okay? And that makes sense to everybody. We've all sinned. God does not. But the second thing the Bible says about God is that He's just. And what that says about us is that we're in trouble because God simply cannot just overlook our sins or He wouldn't be just anymore. And the penalty of that, the Bible says, 
is eternal separation from God. So God is holy and we're not. He's just and we're in trouble as a result of that. But there's a third thing the Bible teaches us about who God is and that's that he's loving. And as a result of that love, he sent his son to make a way by paying for our sins that we could enter into his justice and enter into a relationship with a holy and just and loving God as our father. What that means for us, we can trust Christ to find our way back to God. And those are, those are three things about God that the Bible teaches and three things it teaches about us. And so that's how I would do it. How would you do it? Could you do it when you meet Lydia? Can you explain to her what it means to be a Christian and how she could do it? A real Christian, a real follower of Jesus who trusts in him. Now, you need to know, at 9 o'clock, across the parking lot in Building 6, there's a class being taught that teaches you this very thing. It's called The Greatest Story You'll Ever Tell, and it's teaching you how to explain to people the good news about Jesus in the simplest of ways. Okay? There are lots of great ways to do this, but you can go over there at 9 o'clock, and we've got people, not next week, there won't be a class next week because it's Easter Sunday, but the following week, there'll be a class over there that'll be training you. Let us help you. Let's be ready when we meet Lydia. That's what I love about Paul, right? He is, he's in this maze. This is all he sees. Don't go here. Don't go here. Take a beating here, right? And yet, at every twist and turn, it's like he's expecting an opportunity. He's expecting an open door. He's looking for an open door. And you know, one of the reasons he's looking for open doors is because he's praying for them. In fact, Paul's pattern was to get other people to pray for open doors for him. In Colossians chapter 4, Paul, the same Paul, is going to later write to the church in Colossae. He'll write, at the same time, pray also for us. He's in prison when he's writing this. That God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak, okay? He's praying for open doors. There's an author from Australia, his name is John Dixon, and he writes about how in Australia, when he was growing up, um, the public schools in Australia offered a class on the Bible that local volunteers from a local church could come in and teach, right? So the public schools had a class on the Bible. Volunteers from the local church would come in and teach. His particular class, a lady named Glenda, he describes as a, as a very ordinary middle-class housewife, okay, um, was his volunteer. She came into their class and taught them the Bible. And he says that uh, every, he says that every Friday afternoon, Glenda, the volunteer, would invite the whole class to her house for lunch and for honest conversation about Jesus. And he said, so we went back. And the next Friday we went back. And the next Friday and the next Friday. Slowly but surely, he says, the Jesus stuff became as important as the food. So we, became, we, we came with more and more friends, came with us. Some of these 15-year-olds, he says, were the worst kids in the school. But Glenda just opened her heart every Friday afternoon, treated us all like we were family. 
He said, there was one night when my friend Daniel was rather intoxicated and we knew we couldn't take him to his house because his dad was an army man and would be livid. We didn't want to leave him on the street, so we all said, hey, let's take him to Glenda's house. She'll have him. She'll clean him up. So he says, it was near midnight when they're knocking on her door and uh, it turns out she was just finishing up some kind of posh dinner party with lots of guests. Says she didn't bat an eye. She welcomed us in, showed us straight past her guests into the back of the house. She went and got some spare clothes and said, throw him in the shower, clean him up, and just put him to bed. We'll sort it out in the morning. Next morning, Dixon says we went back to Glenda's house around 10 o'clock to pick up Daniel. He was sitting at the kitchen table, and Glenda was making him bacon and eggs, and they were having, as he says, a good old chat, right? We took Daniel to Glenda's house, he says, because she had left a real impression on us that Christians actually like sinners. We had no doubt that she hated our drinking habits. She was a teetotaler and talked openly about avoiding alcohol. But even in that situation, her first instinct was not to condemn us, but to love us more. And he says, it was extraordinary. He says, after about six months of scripture classes, Friday afternoon events, and the incident with Daniel, we found ourselves thinking that Jesus was real, that he was inescapable, and that he was powerful. So about six or eight months into it, about five of us became Christians. We really surrendered to Christ's lordship and accepted his mercy. Now he says, years later, I was starting my own Christian ministry um, and trying to figure out new ways to reach people. So my first thought was, I'll go to Glenda and ask her what her secret was. Since several of us had become Christians through her influence, I figured she must have had some strategy. So I went to her fully expecting her to tell me about some program she implemented or some particular way she had of sharing the gospel. And Without batting an eye, she simply said, prayer. He said, I was really disappointed. <laughs> but she continued, she said, that year, a bunch of us who taught scripture in the schools decided to make it a year of prayer just to plead the Lord of the harvest to do something special, and we did. And by the end of the year, there you all were confessing Jesus. So I was thinking maybe this should be our year. Maybe that whole one, one, one thing that you're learning in your small group where you pray for one friend every day for one minute at one o'clock who needs Christ. Maybe, maybe if we were really faithful in that, it'd be interesting to see what the Lord of the harvest does here. So anyway, when Paul is redirected to Philippi, he goes expectantly He's looking for the open door that God provided. Two-door slam in his face. He has a vision. And when he'd seen the vision, right back in verse 10, immediately, Luke says, we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. They're just waiting for an open door. And as a result of their obedience, Lydia believes, and so does her household. They all believe. Her whole family believes and are baptized. And then she opens up her home to Paul and to his band. And so evidently it's Paul's practice then while he's in Philippi to go back to the same place of prayer repeatedly. So that he says in verse 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination 
and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Okay. Interesting encounter. Don't miss the, the reality that there are spiritual forces that oppose Christ and oppress people. They're in the Bible and they still exist today. I had a guy come up and tell me a story between services about an encounter he had very similar to this one that Paul had. If Lydia was a wealthy businesswoman seeking God, this girl is her opposite. She's a slave, possessed by a demonic spirit. Evidently, she had some ability to foretell some future events and her owners. Remember, she's a slave. Somebody owned her. They exploited this demonic ability for great profit. Now, She's crying out the truth about Paul and his people, right? She's saying, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Why would someone with a demon proclaim what is true? And it's interesting, um, this happens when Jesus encounters the demons. You remember on a number of occasions? They declare who he is. And one author put forward this idea of why that might be. Uh, Pastor Bob Deffenbaugh writes, he says, you remember the old story in the Old Testament about, about uh, Balaam, the false prophet who was hired by Balak, the king of Moab, to curse the Israelites as they were about to enter the promised land. Balaam really did want to earn the fee for doing so, but every time Balaam opened his mouth to curse the Israelites, he ended up blessing them. You can read about it in Numbers 23. The fact was that Balaam could not curse the Israelites because God had blessed them. And, and Bob Deffenbaugh says, I seriously doubt that this slave girl intended to say what she did, but she was unable to say anything else. All she could do was speak the truth about Paul and his colleagues and the gospel they had come to preach. So why then is Paul so annoyed if she's declaring what is true? And again, I think you know, it helps to think back to what Jesus did. He silenced the demons from time to time when they would declare who he was. Remember that? And you get the sense, one, that Paul really was annoyed because this was, I don't think this was she showed up at lunch and said it once, but evidently she constantly followed him around for days saying the same thing. He was genuinely annoyed. And let's face it, you know, a herald who's demon-possessed is not the greatest PR coup, the best endorsement that you can get for your ministry, okay? So he silenced her and he freed her from the demon. But it's interesting, just that quickly, the girl leaves the story. We don't know anything more about her. We don't know if she followed Jesus or if she was one of the sad lot Jesus talked about where the demons come back with even more of their friends and the situation is worse than the first. Did she return to her old master? Did she follow Christ? We don't know. 
All we know is that she was set free by the greater power of the name of Jesus. And that seems to be the focus. It's not on her, but it's on Jesus' power and authority over demons. And her story is kind of a bridge between the story about Lydia's conversion and another story about someone who comes to faith. It's another twist and turn that takes us to a situation that Luke does want us to know leads to faith, even though it's by way of great suffering. And that starts in verse 19. Now, when this girl's owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers, and when they brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, as you hear that story, there's something I want to make sure you don't miss. Do you notice what's driving all of this? Why this happens? Okay. Um, they're greed. Okay. That's why they oppose Paul and the gospel. It's their greed. They were not troubled that a girl was possessed by an unclean spirit. Didn't bother them. They did not rejoice when she was set free from that spirit, all that mattered to them was their income stream. And they were angered to the point of public violence against those who had taken it away from them. Greed, as the scripture warns us repeatedly, is really much darker than we think it is. Well, all of this leads to those false accusations against Paul and Silas, to beatings, ultimately to imprisonment in what's the equivalent of a maximum security cell, and they were put in stocks. These are stocks from a later day, but you get the sense of it. They had been beaten, and now they were put in the, the inner part of a very dark and secure place in the jail, and their feet are put in stocks. And the next thing we know, we find Paul and Silas there singing hymns. Look at, look at verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. You bet they were listening to, get to them, okay? It's, it's not that they were great singers. That's not why they were listening to them. This is not normal behavior in a prison at midnight for people who have just been publicly beaten, falsely accused, thrown in stocks, and thrown in the most secure cell in the prison. This is not normal. Christians, this is what you learn from this, Christians suffer differently. We suffer differently. We suffer with the hope that God is at work even in the closed door of our suffering. We really believe what Paul would later write is true in Romans 8. That we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. We believe that. And we expect 
God to be at work in and through us, even in our suffering. Okay? There's a story, uh, it's, it's an old kind of a fable it's told about a daughter who was having very difficult times, struggle after struggle after struggle, problem after problem. She went to her father. Her father is a chef. And she says, I'm tired of fighting. I don't know if I can go on. He doesn't say anything. He gets up from where they're talking. He walks into the kitchen. He puts three pots of water on the stove. And he brings them to a boil. He tells her to come in. And she comes in and she watches him as he puts carrots in the first uh, a raw egg in the second, and coffee grounds in the third. And they watch, she watches as these things boil. She's trying to figure out, what is my dad doing okay, at this point in time? After a while, he went over, he turned off all the burners, and he fished out the carrots. He placed them in a bowl. He pulled out the eggs, put them in a bowl, and he poured the coffee into a third bowl. And he turned to her and he said, darling, what, what do you see? She said, dad, this is not rocket science. There are carrots, there are eggs, and there is coffee. He brought her closer and asked her to feel the carrots. She did, and she noticed that the carrots now were soft and limp. He asked her to take an egg, break it open. So she does, and she noticed now the egg is, is hard-boiled. Finally, he asked her to sip the coffee, and she smiled as she tasted the coffee's rich flavor. Um, she said, so, Dad, what's the point? He says, each one faced the same adversity, boiling water, but each reacted differently. The carrot went in strong, hard, unrelenting, but after being subjected to the boiling water, he says, it softened, and it became flimsy and weak. The egg was fragile. Its thin outer shell had protected its liquid interior, but after sitting through the boiling water, its inside hardened. The coffee grounds, however, he said, were unique. By being in the boiling water, they changed the water. He turned to his daughter and he said, Sweetheart, when adversity knocks on your door, which are you? And so we as Christians, we expect God to make us coffee. Maybe I should say that differently. Um, <laughs> we expect God to open doors for us to share His love with others, even in our suffering and hardship and adversity. Okay. That is why we're there. So about midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundation of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. This is, by the way, not normal earthquake fallout. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. And Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself. We are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, 
Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And then he brought them up into his house, set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Now, it seems to me that God has arranged all these twists and turns, these tilts back and forth and this way and that way. A slave girl shouting truth that led to an unjust arrest and false accusations and public flogging so that Paul and Silas were sent to this man's prison. And he personally was charged with their care. An earthquake happened so severe that it shook the foundation of the prison. And you couple that with prisoners who chose when they had the opportunity not to escape. But instead their greater concern was for him, for for his well-being. When he saw how they suffered differently, he heard them singing and praying in the stocks. He experienced from them a love for him that was greater than their desire to escape. When he saw all that, when he saw that they were following the example of Jesus, who while on the cross was concerned for his mother and for another of the cross bearers next to him and for even for those who put him there as he prayed for their forgiveness, as he experienced this faith, this love for others when their own suffering was so very great, this caused him to believe. I believe that God orchestrated all these events, sent Paul to Macedonia so that this jailer and his household could believe. And just like Lydia, he and his household were baptized. You know, and in the New Testament, this is what marks believers in Jesus, baptism. And if you are following Jesus, you should follow him in baptism. And again, just like Lydia, the gospel flows through his household and his whole household believes too and are baptized. This is, this is often how, how the gospel flows through households. When the head of a household comes to believe in Jesus, often it will flow through the entire household. Not, not always, definitely not always, but often it will. And I am, I am hoping, uh, one of my two, two, two people, I have two that I do at two o'clock for two minutes every day. My, my great hope is that when one of them, when he trusts Christ, his whole family's going to come to Christ. Um, and then again, just like Lydia, he opens up his home to them and the prisoners, the prisoners become honored dinner guests. And the jailer washes their wounds, perhaps even wounds he inflicted with those stocks. I love the way Daryl Bach puts it. He says that the jailer washes their wounds, but he received the greater washing. And don't, don't miss Paul's expectant readiness. Okay? 
Every twist, every turn, every tilt, every journey forbidden, every false accusation, every wrongful suffering in his mind could be the one that leads to the open door. It could be right there, right in the midst of the hardship, just around the corner from an inexplicable redirect. And I know that you are facing those kinds of things, things that make absolutely no sense to you. Hardship, suffering, loss, injustice, confusion, closed doors. And could it be for you that God is positioning you where the door is open widest? And that's why you're there. Drop down with me to the very last verse in our passage, verse 40. Um, Paul and Silas at last are out of prison. They're actually escorted out of prison. If you read the previous verses, you'll find out how that came about. And the first thing they do is they visit Lydia. They go back to see Lydia. And when they've seen the brothers, evidently now there's a church meeting in Lydia's house. And there are men that are involved in that church. They encourage them and they depart. And so it seems that from one businesswoman and a converted jailer and their families and just maybe, I hope, a slave girl who'd been set free, there's a church that starts in the city of Philippi. And Paul, later on, from a prison cell, is going to write a letter to that church, this church that started from these families. And this is what he's going to write to them. In Philippians chapter 1, he says, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. May Christ have mercy on us that our lives too may be found worthy of the gospel, expectantly faithful even in our suffering. Amen. May it be so for us. Now today we're going to close our service a little differently. We're going to close with our offering. And as we do, let me encourage you, use this time and the song that the team is going to lead us in. About, it's a song about Paul and Silas to reflect on what's God saying to you. What's he saying to you through his word today? What is he calling you to be and to do in response to it? Let me pray for us as the team comes up. Father, have mercy. Now upon us, take your word, apply it deep in our hearts so that we won't shake it by busyness or forgetfulness or even just unwillingness on our part. May your spirit have full access to our lives to obey and honor you. And may this offering that we take honor you. May it spread the gospel to Lydia's and slave girls and jailers all around the world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.